everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 159, Circe. On today's episode, we discuss Madeline Miller's novel, Circe, a novel that retells some of the most infamous Greek myths from the point of view of Circe, a witch who most famously appears in the Odyssey where she turns Odysseus's men into pigs. Yeah. Yeah. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We're Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hi, guys. Hey! Merry Christmas! Happy Uh, holidays! So, we're recording this two days before uh, Jesus comes back. Mm. Yeah, that's what, no, No? that's Easter. That's Easter. That's the the bunny one. Get these confused as a Jew. We are recording this on the second day of Hanukkah. There you go. Yes, there we go. Uh, we're right before Christmas. Um, you guys won't hear it until after the uh, the holidays. Ryder is about to leave the country. Yay! Where, where are you going, Ryder? Going to Bali. What's on in, Christmas Day? What's in Bali? Uh, a collection of. There's a group of friends. You know, I have friends that I grew up with that we've all kind of scattered around the earth, um, and I don't get to see them that often. In particular, some friends from England who uh, travel a lot and, you know, we kind of meet up in foreign countries every couple of years. And so we're all, we all turned 40 this year, this group of friends. So we're all meeting up in Bali as a sort of like group 40th birthday gathering with our families. Um, This this sounds like it could go south fast. (laughs) Yeah, it does. It sounds like the setup for either like a Judd Apatow uh, (laughs) or like a really, really uh, bad horror film. Yeah, it's like, but no, it's going to be great. It's like a lot of the group surfs. I don't really surf anymore. So I'm just going to be sitting on the beach reading. It's mostly just hanging out with these kids. I mean, it's like a group, a great, these are like my oldest friends and um, and our kids all get along um, and it's going to be, it's going to be really great. So, but what happens when one of them turns to you and says, do you want to see a dead body? And then, (laughs) and then like, instead of it being some cool, like the body, this, uh, you know, stand by me thing, you guys just go and you just kill a drifter in Bali. Like what happens then? (laughs) That could happen. Like uh, then it becomes a great novel or a movie 40, that I get to make. Nothing to lose anymore. <laughs> right, it's yeah. all down it here from happen. here anyway. No, the, the it, I think it's the the Dijon Apatow version is much more likely. <laughs> that, that people, uh, you know, somebody somebody has an affair, uh, somebody drinks oh, too yeah, much. For sure. that's the more happen. interpersonal, like we're forty, but this is our chance to act like eighteen year olds again, right. and that yeah. goes south on us. That's more likely. But no, this is a great group of people. So I can I can almost gonna... see the montage scene of infidelity played over Ryan Adams' Lucky Now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh my god! Did you guys have you guys seen the Marriage Story yet? The Marriage Story. No, yet? no. I'm saving it. It is a horror film. It is so good. Yeah. But it is it be just man, it'll make you never want to get divorced. Well, I don't want to get divorced anyway. <laughs> it's really good. It's really I, good. Yeah. The reason I haven't watched this is I keep wanting to watch it, but I don't know how to suggest it to my husband as the way to spend our free time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, it, it's worth it for the performances. Like, it's yeah. just the appreciation of the acting and the writing is like, it, 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 and you do laugh. I mean, it is funny, especially the first, like, the first half is, it's just, it, it goes south. Um, has, have you guys seen Parasite? 
I have not seen Parasite. All right. Parasite is the best movie of the year, so go see it. Wow, okay. I did just see uh, the Star Wars movie. Eh. It's horrible. You know, the last 30 minutes, I started to feel emotion. Everything else, it's just like, oh, man. I, I mean... Look, I'm I'm a victim of nostalgia as much as the next person, probably more so. Maybe not as much as Ryder is, but <laughs> a victim of nostalgia, no less. But I just really want a, a surprising story. You know, that's all. That's all I really want out of a Star Wars movie now. It's just something that surprises me. And I just can't get down with 8,000 movies about who your fucking grandfather is no, and who your father is and who your mom is. Like, who gives a shit? Ugh, makes me crazy. Well, my nostalgia train is coming up Christmas Day, two more days till I get to see Little Women, which oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to super that too. excited about. Yeah, I am yeah. too. I'm really excited about and it. And Greg wants to see Cats because... Oh, no. No, no. <laughs> no Have you guys because... been reading the reviews? It's a... oh, <laughs> The yeah. reviews are so fun to read. It's like... Yeah, I was like, Greg, it's really bad. And he goes, oh, God. It's going to be as bad as I hoped it was. We have to see it now. Yeah. That's kind of how I started to yeah. feel. I read I read a compilation of like the worst reviews. Yeah. And, and it was just like, you know, people talking about how they put human faces on cockroaches that do like, like rocket dances <laughs> and they put human faces on mice and then they get eaten by the cats. Like it is supposedly like, so just in that uncanny valley of, of the, the way they look, you know, that you can't get used to it. And right. It's it's never bad enough to be campy and fun. It's just bad. But now I'm kind of like, well, maybe this is. But this then is also, going to the theater. It it turns out like they sent the versions that didn't have finished CGI out. So yeah. there are full scenes where there's just like you can see Judy Dench's hands and things because they were working on the CGI like through last week or something, <laughs> and so now they're sending all new prints out to. Um, to all the theaters with the actual finished CGI on it. I mean, but uh, who just, likes Cats to begin with? I mean, it is the worst no musical one. ever made. But it's a made. hugely no successful it's play. It's so dumb, though. Like, when I finally saw it in, like, my teens, you know, after it was the big thing all throughout the 80s. So I saw it in, like, the late 90s. I remember just being like, what? <laughs> this was this was on the same scale as, like, Les Miserables and Phantom of the Opera, which, like, I don't like Phantom, but at least there's a functioning story. Right. And, like, yeah, at least it no. makes, like, no, Cats is the most, of, I mean, it's like, what were people smoking in 1982 or whenever it came out? It became, like, the biggest hit on Broadway. It's absurd. It's, oh, God, it just hurts my, there, my There's brain a line in, um, in Justin Chang's review in the LA Times where he says, if you see this movie... And I'm not recommending that. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it, it's it's a it's an art form. The reviews of cats, and you know, but so here's the thing that always makes me wonder about such things. Like really smart people made this movie. Tom Hopper won the Academy Award for the King's Speech. He made this movie. Yeah. Judy Dench and James Corden and Taylor Swift and you know all these people that are super talented. Yeah. Like none of them were like, yeah, this is a bad idea. We well, gotta... nostalgia is dangerous. I mean, <laughs> as we've no, learned from it's... Watchmen, right. uh, you know, I can see I I can understand how it happened because first of all, in in musical land, like there's room for so many famous people in it and they probably all had to shoot for like 2 days. You know what I mean? So <laughs> right. it's easy That's what to happened. agree. Yeah, right. the studio then, announced the thing. They attached the guy who directed 
Les yeah. Miserables. So it had the same era musical guy that won all the awards. So it was like, oh, it'll be just as good. And then actors started joining on. There was like, well, if Judy Dench is in it and Ian McKellen is thinking, I'll be in it. Right. right. So yeah. then everybody's like, well, this must be good. I'm the only one who thinks this maybe will be bad. I'll just go along with it. This has to be good. <laughs> oh. When Emperor's we saw, clothes, man. yeah, when we saw the the trailer, and then at the end, it's like Aunt Jason Derulo. We were like, we are definitely <laughs> seeing this movie. Judy Dench and Jason Derulo together. That's a must see in my house. See, oh. when I saw that Idris Elba was in it, I was like, <laughs> they got Stringer Bell to be in this fucking movie. <laughs> they got everybody. That's just... <laughs> How the fuck did they get Stringer Bell? Okay, none of this has anything to do with literature. Well, it's the mythology of our time. No, but, but wait, you guys do know that Cats is all an interpretation of a weird T.S. Eliot collection, right? Yes. 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 Okay, yes. so it's it is like, literary in my defense, right. as is Little Women. It is an adaptation. That is correct. Yeah. I, you and, know what I, and I if, do Can want... anybody define the word jellical? Oh God, no! Like it, it, he just created. It's nonsense. It made its full-on nonsense poems, and then they try to. I mean, the only the only reason Cats has anything going for it is that one song, "Memory," which is a beautiful song. When you first hear it, you're like, "Yeah," but the story is like, "What's okay?" Sorry, I don't know, I don't know any. Songs it's not worth going. Cats. You know I'm the song "Memory." I don't Mem- know it. Memories. All alone in the moon. In the moon. You know it. It's in every music box in history. Yeah. No. While you guys are listening to Memory, I was I was into gangster rap. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> I forgot you are amazingly cool. <laughs> I'm gonna get that on my tombstone. As you all know, I like to read a lot, which doesn't leave really any time for cooking. Um, and so this is the part where I tell you about HelloFresh, one of our sponsors this week. Um, I get HelloFresh once in a while and it's really great. You guys, um, it's flexible. I can change the day of the week when I get it or skip a box if I want to. It's really delicious. There's chef curated recipes every time, which is a lot better than anything I would come up with. (laughs) And for me, the best thing is that it saves time. I am lazy. I don't want to go to the grocery store and Sometimes I don't even want to be decisive enough to order takeout and wait an hour for it to come. So those are the times where I just grab whatever's in the box and make what I got. And this week, I got to make cheesy beef tostadas, and they were super delicious, and everyone in my house liked them. So it was awesome. Um, But we we can't just save all the good stuff for ourselves. So HelloFresh has given us a promo code for you guys. It is. HelloFresh.com slash LiteraryDisco10. And if you use that code, LiteraryDisco10, during our New Year's sale, um, you're going to get 10 free meals and free shipping. So this is the time, you lazy guys. Get your get your box, hook it up, and then pig out while digging into a novel. That's what I do. <laughs> so uh, so we read a book. Yeah, let me, I'll do my my attempt at a summary. Right. Um, unfortunately, I, I listened to this on audio about two months ago. And <laughs> so, and, and so trying to piece together what happened without the book in front of me was, was a little difficult. But, all right, Madeline Miller's novel, Circe, was published in 2018, uh, became a, a huge bestseller and uh, garnered a lot of uh, positive reviews. It's based on existing Greek myths and text, and uh, most notably the Odyssey by Homer, but... It centers Circe, 
who is the daughter of the sun god Helios and the nymph Percy. She's not a, herself a god, but she's immortal. And then she discovers her, her own form of power, which is magic that combines innate gifts with natural ingredients. So she essentially invents the concept of a witch. Come on, stop! This is going to be a fun episode, everybody. All right. uh, so after Cersei uses her powers to transform a nymph into yep. a monster, she's banished by Zeus and the other gods to her own island, where she practices her skills and starts taking revenge on rapey sailors by turning them into pigs, which then sets up her infamous encounter and her year-long love affair with Odysseus, um, who he actually doesn't show up until about halfway through their novel. Um, So in the meantime, Cersei engages with a lot of the famous characters from Greek mythology, and the book presents a lot of familiar stories in a very fresh and feminist point of view. Long, very long. Oh my god! Uh, you I, need to get over yourself because yeah. spoiler alert: Ryder and I are obsessed with this book. So this book get is on board. Amazing! <laughs> I love. I I can't. I mean, you really weren't drawn in at all. Well, like you guys, I both listened to it and I also read it. So I was listening to it and I was reading the ebook at the same time. Yeah. When I was listening to it, I was drawn in because whoever the narrator is. She could read the contents of uh, a bag of chemicals, and I'd be like, "Yeah, it's the most moving bag of chemicals I've ever read." Yeah, um, we should find her name. Does anybody? I'm looking we... it up right now. Yeah, please, because uh, she's uh, worth. She was great. She's she incredible. Great. But I yeah. just, I, I'm sorry, I don't. I have reasons that I don't care. I just yeah. don't care. I just don't care. Well, now, how does it differ for you from like? Do you do you have the same issue with like uh, your average fantasy book? No, um, I think we talked a lot about this a little bit when we did the Neil Gaiman book. It occurs to me, but um, I, like my suspension of disbelief is like it's ten levels beyond my ability to suspend disbelief. Mm-hmm. Like we've got gods, we've got gods in human form. They're immortal. I'm the son of this, the daughter of this, the daughter of this, the daughter of this. I've lived thousands of years. This fucking book takes place over like fifteen thousand years. Okay. Like, uh, I it's hard for me to make an emotional connection to an immortal, even when they're doing uh, fantastic and interesting things, because there is no consequence for that character, other than well, emotional pain for and suffering until the very end <laughs> well that's not true okay yeah. this is so was... weird i what you're saying is weird uh so like here's a quote <laughs> deep reviews that's, by julia that's the it's quote from the, the, uh, the episode uh, so like Todd, here's what a you're quote saying is weird that gets exactly at what you're saying but like the interpretation and emotion behind it is i mean it's just great writing so I thought once that gods are the opposite of death, but I see now that they're more dead than anything, for they are unchanging and can hold nothing in their hands. I mean, this novel is really aware of this passage of time and, like, Mm -hmm. everything that you're talking about, but in a way that's, like, creating a humongous amount of emotional pain and suffering for this character. Yeah, I mean, I recognize that Cersei throughout the book suffers greatly, but I, there's no, for me, I'm like, oh, a, a supernatural being is, is suffering greatly. Hmm. <laughs> and you don't have any 
connection to the symbolism of you're a fiction writer. This is very weird. <laughs> what you're saying is weird. I stand by my statement. Yeah. I, it, I don't know what it is. I, I've never it for you. I've never been able to connect to mythology, any kind of mythology, Greek and Roman mythology. Uh, is there other mythology? <laughs> um, Norse mythology. North. North. Yeah, yes. Native American mythology. Right. Tons of Todd, mythology. It might surprise you to hear that there's myths from all over the world. Right. I, it's what I'm, people do. I can't I can't connect. It's, it's, your oral storytelling begins with this, with the myth. It's why I can't connect to biblical stories. Really? Yeah. It's like I just I have a hard time having my mind now that's not to say i didn't enjoy aspects of the story of course i did but i just have a hard time like giving a shit about gods and nymphs mm. and 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 waifs and you know and, and like uh like cilia's 12 heads and 16 feet and all of her all that shit like ah, just, look i mean i you know what here yeah. i tend to i tend to agree with you about like the subject of of Greek mythology in general, it to me it's very intimidating, mostly because, um, well, I th I guess partly because you only really only get enter it in an academic setting nowadays. Right. You know, it's like usually right. in high school or middle school, maybe or or and then in a college where you um, you're you're sort of presented with this pantheon that is just overwhelming and so complex and has been retold and retold and reinterpreted. And also has this air, especially in the case of Greek mythology, it has this sort of like, you should know these things because that will help you understand like contemporary literary references better, like James Joyce or, you know, like it, it's like it, there's a there's a sort of importance placed on these these stories that maybe is a little undue and puts a, a puts pressure yeah. on, on you. Like it definitely I'm intimidated by it and I've never I don't I don't find them easy to connect to um in a you know in a like I don't connect with the characters and in you know they they sort of a lot of times Greek myths and characters end up being reduced to abstractions to me they're like fables yeah you know, like exactly. this god represents you know the dangers of greed and this is a story about how you can't be too ambitious don't fly so close to the sun or you know but I don't I never feel like like when I have been reading Greek myths before in, in, in college or whatever, I, I never connected to like Daedalus as a person. Right. Um, but that's what I loved about this book is that she accomplishes, she, she made me care about, you know, like uh, while I've enjoyed the Odyssey in this sort of abstract, like, oh, this is cool. And these little, you know, sections are interesting or it's weird that Telemachus does that thing. And I got to think about that. It's not like a personal thing the way it was in this book where I was I was involved with Odysseus as a person as a as a man I was involved with Circe as this woman and and you know her, I don't know like this accomplished what I have always wanted from Greek myths uh, which is so, that personal connection. So I was I was reading this article in the New York Times about this book because I was trying to figure out why I was feeling the way that I feel. Yeah. <laughs> and um who actually wrote this? Oh, um Claire Massoud, who's a fantastic writer, she wrote the review of Circe in the New York Times, and she quotes Daniel Mendelssohn, who you might remember we read in the Apple Tree book. Um, mm -hmm. He wrote the essay um, about taking his mother out of the house, um, and he described Madeline Miller's previous book, which was The Song of Achilles, as having the head of a young adult novel, the body of the Iliad, and the hindquarters of Barbara Cartland. 
And <laughs> I don't know the last reference. What's the last Barbara Cartland is a, uh, she wrote 8 million romance novels. Oh, okay. And uh, I read that and I was like, yes. <laughs> yes. That's about, like, when when this gets, um, like, when, we, when you start diving into the romantic language and, and the, you know, sewing each other's bodies for thousands of years and all that shit, like, I just tune out. And and that sort of explains, like, at its best, of course, it's super engaging. And I learned more about um, the mythology reading this book than I did in my two years of Greek and Roman mythology at Cal State Northridge. Um, but uh, I just could not, I, I just didn't emotionally connect to it unless that wow. lovely woman was reading the book to me, in which case I could drive for hours listening to her read. <laughs> and who was so- this woman? Did we find out, Julia? I no, my internet's too slow. Someone else will have Hold to. Hold on, I will tell you. Um, I just wow, it's so Perdita amazing Weeks. to me. Perdita Weeks, yes. I looked it up. I think I mentioned it in another episode. Hold on. And the scrub forest in sight and hills overhead at this time of the year. The dragon. Oh, that's too fast. Hold on. <laughs> yeah, you've got like double. Hold on. Here she is. I watched him. Are you going to ask what is there? I do not think you want me to. Oh. Less than a month we had spent together. Oh, that boy. seemed to know me better than her. anyone who I will had find her. the world. Yeah. It was a I will sail the seven seas to find her. <laughs> uh, what's her name? Beautiful voice and great, great actor. Yeah. Perdita every, Weeks. Yeah. Perdita Weeks. Okay. She's great. I'm going to download every audiobook she does. Uh, so... But you, you guys talk about how good it is. I'm going to step out. Yeah, you already <laughs> ruined everything. Okay, so I've always liked mythology, and what I love about it is it's kind of dual purpose. You know, the way that you're talking about it is purely from like a fiction perspective, um, and mm-hmm. of course that is there because it is not real. But <laughs> when you think of it in the context of world history and people actually believing in the forces of these deities or minor deities um that symbolic power is so interesting and exciting you know to simultaneously imagine a world where athena could literally show up at your door and you're also taking it in a very figurative way where oh athena is with me here today uh, pressuring me into doing this or i need her favor or i've like sold myself for some deal um that's really fun and interesting and i mean the best thing about greek mythology as opposed to our current you know century of fantasy that we read is like it's there's no black and white there's there's no good versus evil there's no gandalf versus sauron Mm -hmm. like boo boring hate that i hate like i like a lot of the content that modern writers write but it's all about like inherent good or evil and all of these Greek figures, they're all Are fucked up. Everything. They're deeply fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. They're that is complex. Yeah. yeah. But like, uh, what's uh, one of my favorite parts of the book is when her sister gives birth to the Minotaur. And yeah, her that sister. Is a creepy is, ass scene. <laughs> yeah. And her sister is, you know, really has harassed her her entire life. But then we get this like brief portrait of this goddess who is you know, isolated and lonely and then like gives birth to this monster and hates it, but is also feeling like this maternal protection. And I mean, 
Well, she also Who fucked the bowl, reality? for God's sake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I already knew that part. That part's canon. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, I like the liftoff from reality. I don't want to consider, you know, real people. I want to, like, dig into these crazy strange gods who can do things that no one else in fiction can do yeah well so this is the problem i have actually is that there are no boundaries so at any point these powers that they have can shift and can change and that allows for such wild twists and turns of the story that for me that's the thing that really um strips out the um the tension and the consequence like at any point in time, these gods can decide that I can, you know, uh, towards the end, um, Helios says to Cersei, I could get rid of you with a thought. And which is a great line. And and I was like, oh, well, then they could have just got rid of all these problems <laughs> with a thought. And like, I don't like not having margins of of um, of what can or should happen in the reality of a particular story. These characters, they can do anything at any time. And so the the problems that mortals have, which are transposed onto the gods so that we have a story that we can read and understand, um, seems like at any moment in time, someone could just snap their fingers and be like, eh, it's over with, it's done. Don't worry but they it. can't, oh, okay, but what's cool about it is they have these those kind of powers, but they're locked together by politics mm-hmm. and internal or emotional struggles or sexual problems of whatever kind and that's that's neat like he can't kill her because of all his political dealings with everybody even though she's his pain in the ass daughter that's been around for 10,000 years or whatever (laughs) after 10,000 years couldn't you just let like just it's cool everything's cool after 10,000 years (laughs) Yeah, I actually think the two points you guys just made actually coincide with one another because to me it's it's our it, like in our like the way we live in this, you know, Judeo-Christian world view that we all kind of inherit nowadays, the the notion of like a, a god or a monotheistic god in particular, but at least the notion of a god or the notion of omnipotence sort of is goes along with morality, right? It go mm-hmm. it's 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 if if there is a god and 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 that that being is omnipotent, then everything that that being does is good and and everything that that being does not approve of is bad and and it's but the but but by having multiple gods who are in constant struggle with each other for power to rule over the the earth and rule over humans and use human it, it sort of spreads it, it d- disables the whole notion of morality it makes morality something that you're always in, you always have to keep telling stories about to sort of make sense of like which god do you like right now and then each god is sort of messed up because they needed to do that thing and that was actually a good idea because they did like that person or you know and it's 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 so human and messy and to me like just better storytelling you know like as compared to like yeah. what you were saying about the biblical stories like you, mm-hmm. you read the bible and like it's just Listen to God. He's right. And if you're, if you're not on his side, fucking plague, you know, or right. firstborn kid or whatever. And and then even Jesus, it's the same sort of thing. It's like you're either with me or against me and I'm good. Uh, and, you know, and you can say that as nicely as you want. But that is the basic worldview of of today's today's version of, of, of supernatural myths that people believe in. But like back then, I, I, yeah. And I think that 
I don't know. I find that I find it hard to connect with too, Todd. But that's what I really liked about this book is that it it, it managed to get to me. It man, I felt like she was an underdog. You know, she's positioned mm-hmm. as an underdog, and the first story that's told is is her falling in love with Glauco, so a human. Yeah. And I was just, I'm on board with that. Like, you know, oh, this is going to be about a woman who consists, an immortal who consistently falls in love with mortals. And that is just a really cool concept. And, you know, it's it's the same story as Little Mermaid or a bunch, you know, a bunch of folk, folk tales and stories sort of revolve around this idea. And to me, there are stakes in that because there's still a broken heart. You know, even if you can't die, like you don't, you don't want Cersei to be hurt. At least I didn't. I was, I was drawn in. Um, and Glaucus I, isn't really the main, I mean, he's the catalyst for her main emotional problem, which is that uh-huh. she turns her romantic rival into Scylla, the, the famous like sea monster, which anyone who's into mythology knows about this like terrifying sea market. So she ca- carries this guilt <laughs> with her through thousands of years years. (laughs) yeah and i think i i don't disconnect from that i like ultra connect with that because her shame is so deep that everyone else has forgotten or never knew that she even had anything to do with it or even knew this person or that Scylla was ever a person or a a god or a nymph or whatever Yeah. yeah so yeah that lifelong not even lifelong that that universe long shame is really what pulls her through the whole entire novel but like um, get some well, therapy you know get get some therapy <laughs> her therapy was was turning so uh, turning sailors into pigs right that was how she exercised her demons but see like this is the thing like i i get that yeah that is her immortal shame is that she did this thing to this woman or to this nymph but like okay I'm 48. I've given away some of the shame for terrible things that I've done, like in the last like six months. Like she couldn't, <laughs> at some point in the last fifteen thousand years, she couldn't be like, "All right, yeah, it was horrible. I'm sorry. I did it. I was young. I was only at the time 800 years old when I did this." <laughs> to poor and there'd Scylla. be no story, Todd. The whole point is, yeah, for us exactly. To read these there'd things. be no story. <laughs> so we mentioned. So what she does do instead of therapy which is an absurd <laughs> thing that is not literary criticism <laughs> hey just get some um, therapy <laughs> and i think what makes this book so feel so feminist um is her time alone on this island mm-hmm. so she it is only through being rejected and banished and trapped that she's able to like find this space to become a witch and mm-hmm. just be who she wants to be. Um, and all of that writing is, is so wonderful. Yes. And I think it's like the literal fantasy of many women is like, please just banish, banish me from this patriarchy hellhole. Give me my own Island where the food is constantly replenishing itself. And there's lions and wolves walking around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That then- is, only to find She's... some lesser river god is like, oh, I know where we can send our shitty daughter. Like, I, I do like the idea that there are like, like Bacacta river gods. They're like, eh, let's. Yeah. <laughs> There's an island. Yeah. I, I like these lesser gods. That that I find yeah. appealing. <laughs> well, and, and I t- think. And then poor Cersei has to like watch over these dumb girls who come there and she has to finally like be the authority. I like it when she becomes the authority. I like that. That was nice. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that like Cersei, the the traditional Cersei is sort of presented as this like spiteful, um, you know, evil witch who seduces Odysseus. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, her sexuality is like this sort of evil thing, (laughs) Um, you know, that because, of course, so much of you know the 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 versions so many of the versions that we have are we're told by men right by men discussed among men uh so they they focus on odysseus as the hero and the center of all you know the sort of the 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 moral universe of the story and like that that just the simple inversion like is so powerful and good and like by the like odysseus is just kind of by the time he arrives, you're like, oh, yeah, this story. Right. All right. This yeah. is going to happen now. And it's like, okay, yeah, I can see why she would fall for him. And he is a good guy. He's better than these other, you know, rapists, rapists that she's encountering and whatnot. But, you know, at, by that point, too, like, I, like for me, the Daedalus storyline was just wonderful. Like, I loved yeah. her relationship with Daedalus. And I love that, like, she consistently, the, the, the way that Madeline Miller presents Cersei as, like, witty, and intelligent and like mm-hmm. that the wit like the dialogue that she has with odysseus and and with daedalus it's like it's always based on like a meeting of the minds this sort of mm-hmm. like clever you know and that just that is really fun that was really cool to see that the basis of the relationship was yeah, they you know it was it was entertaining it was like good dialogue it was like i'd love to see this as a scene you know between just two people let alone a immortal and um mm-hmm. but anyway I, all of which is to say like the, the basic conceit of this novel is pretty revolutionary and and to me like a much more interesting version of the Greek myths that, than I've ever read before because I just usually don't identify with anybody. I don't like I don't read, you know, I don't read the Odyssey and really go like um, I'm with Odysseus on this journey. I just don't like I I'm right. just, it's it's more of an intellectual you know, removed thing where I'm going, Oh, what's going to happen next? How does that reflect what these people thought about the world? And how does that reflect? Like, what, what does that say about human beings and, in, in, and the way we think about the world? That's just not the same. It's like an intellectual process. And maybe that's my problem, but. Well, Hey, you know what? You're going to get a chance to see that scene because, uh, Cersei was optioned by HBO for an eight episode limited series. Yeah. Yes. That makes sense. Uh, with, Which some uh, of it's going to be really hard to visualize and probably yeah. shouldn't be because, I mean, that's the other thing about Greek mythology that's always, I mean, this is to the point you've been making, Todd, like the world building, it's like, do you remember in the old, the old movies, like where they were just in the 80s or the 70s, where they were just Henry, Har- what's this? Harry, Harry Hamlin. Hamlin yeah. yeah. Where they <laughs> just, the, the gods are just like people in robes yeah. with like chess pieces. Yeah. <laughs> just like standing around a bunch of pillars talking to one another with yes. English accents. Like it's hard to visualize these things because it is abstract. Like these gods are all powerful. So they can kind of exist in these physically present, but then not there. And they, they go to like halls, but you're like, but what kind of halls? And I thought, that the way Madeline Miller represented that was really cool because she would find ways to sort of zip into abstractions when they're like, you know, come with me and we'll talk in this hall. And then you're like, mm. well, how are they traveling? Wait. But then they kind of be in a big place and she would describe it just enough to be like, yeah, okay, that kind of makes sense. Or, or whenever, whenever Cersei needed an ingredient and she would like dive into the ocean and meet up with mm. and have a conversation. It's like, I can kind of, I can I can see this, but also not have to see it. If that makes sense, the abstraction like a, is part of the fun. Yeah, I think. see, yeah. the abstraction yeah. for me is where I lose all ability to connect. I'm just like, mm. oh, is there like a ghost with a hair that can fuck? 
Okay. <laughs> You're like <laughs> the fun, kind of man. person That's who goes cool into thing. a museum and only likes realistic paintings. That is right. correct. Yeah. <laughs> this is, I understand. Yeah. That this is, is correct. a lot. Right. Well, I mean, I like surrealism in books and stuff, but only to a point. Right. And then after that point, I just get annoyed. Um, maybe, you know what, Madeline Miller, if you're listening, I bet she's a fan. It's This is about me. It's not about you. But you know, this. Yeah. I think this is not, it's not a coincidence that you, that you liked listening to it. Because yeah, listening that, to it was easy. Because that's that these are stories that began as oral traditions, right? right? Like that is the point is that you're and the this well, so let, much of the power of oral storytelling is that it's it's in the transmission, it's in the 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 like literal breath between two people and like I am imagining a thing that cannot be imagined really because it doesn't make logical right. sense. It's not in the real world. It's only you know, whereas I think in our in our visual based and text based society right now, everything is more literal. It needs to be sort of bolted down into a well. How high was the wall? How did it get? You know, and and we're just that's the way we exist these days, and we've lost this oral tradition. Like, right. you, you know, you listen to any like, especially like the Native American stories that like I studied in college. That was what was just blew my mind. Was it was like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, how is it an animal and still talking and right. walking, but then back on all fours and then in the sky, and you just have to go with it, and it's so fun and and it doesn't really make sense with the way our our brains our storytelling brains work now i mean we're built into we are locked into disney and marvel at you know where we take the idea of like thor and we make it like well yeah he lives here and it looks like this right. and it's a planet in another dimension and we get there by, and it's like yeah it's all you know you take you you sap that oral well uh, let me ambiguity that is kind of i think it's a very powerful part of our brains and and a part of our our culture that we're losing touch with that is is good to exercise. See, I agree. Now, as a reader, though, like when I was when I was listening, like I said, I was into it. When I was reading, it, it was harder because sometimes you read it and there's stuff where you're just like, "What the fuck did I just read?" So, for instance, I just pulled up a, a, any page here. Um, Tethys, she was called, great nurse of the world's waters, born like her husband at the dawn of ages. From Mother Earth herself. Like, I read that sentence and I'm like, I'm going to watch television. What? <laughs> what? God, Aren't you silly? Like, oh, I kind of get that. Like, Mother Earth, there's a connection to, you know, I don't the know. The dawn like, of ages. Like, yeah. Come on. come on. But when okay. she reads it with that, with her beautiful mellifluous voice, it all works. But I mean, okay, so. I don't find I don't think this book is challenging. I don't want to overstate it. But no, like, no, it's actually quite quite easily read. It, yes. But you know, don't you want to hear different tones? Like it, it reading mythology or anything even like derivative of mythology is like listening to a different genre of music. You know what I mean? So to to be dismissive and check out and be like, I don't know. Like try. That's the, the exciting point. Yeah, that's that's like you're going to create so much nuance in the way that you like think and hear. I mean, hearing is really the word that I use, even when I'm reading it on paper, you know, like you get in a tone of voice, you get in like a mood about it mm, because yeah. it sounds so different. Yeah. So don't be lazy. Don't just watch TV. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I love TV, but you know, actually there's a good TV example of exactly what we're talking about on TV right now that I bet a lot of our listeners are watching, um, which is the golden compass, um, which are books, why books that that I love. Mm -hmm. Um, and the show's pretty good, but it's not great because the concept behind the golden compass is so 
abstract that you really lose the feel of it taking it out of prose and the concept is that like our our souls exist outside of our bodies as animals which is like ooh fun cgi whatever but yeah. when you really <laughs> when consider you yeah yeah when you really consider like what that means in the in the books you know it's so like complicated and rich and weird and and abstract as we're saying but then you see it on hbo and you're just like oh cute a ferret no, it's right. not right. the same that I can experience. Talk to. Right. No, I agree. Yeah. 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 It's, it's like it's like that's why it's super important. Like so now I, I I'm especially after reading this book I'm so stoked to figure out a way to start telling my son like myth stories. You know, like telling him stories at night where that do relate to some existing stories in some way. Or, um, maybe I'll just do my own versions of like Cersei uh, because I think like. I think that the more we can exercise our brains to, to stretch in those directions, like that is something we're losing. We are totally losing it. And it's something that drove humans always until the invention of visual, the media that we have nowadays. Like we're, we're getting locked into this idea that everything is just, uh, you know, a $200 million adaptation away from being correct. Mm-hmm. You know, right. like we don't yeah. we, like, that's what I hated about the Harry Potter books. Um, even though I never read them, it's just this idea that like, <laughs> This idea that like the books were were just these like um, stop don't don't say another word I don't want to have to read the fucking tweets Ryder I don't want to read the tweets I can't go ahead, go everybody's ahead. hating on J.K. Rowling right now anyway so yeah I, I'm just I'm just what I, I hate about the, the Harry Potter books though I have not read them is. I've only read the, I've only read um, part of the first one but I'm, I'm I will read them I'm planning to read them to my son because I want you know. <laughs> We want to keep up with the culture. But what I hated about that whole phenomenon at the time was like the the books were just sort of like uh, first drafts of the movie, you know? And then the movie was like, it was, it was such a foregone conclusion, like what the movies looked like, what, you know, what Harry looked like, how everybody acted. And it's just like this, like, you know, after we talked about this on the show before, I feel like I've, I've done this rant before. I can hear myself saying it. Okay. But <laughs> basically the goal is like our, our, our or the, like our literary imagination should not be tethered to uh, a film, or to, to, should not be stuck in just visual medium. Like we should, mm-hmm. we read books because you can read smells. You can you can remember something in a book that somebody else is remembering. It's about the associations that our brains can make that you can't just turn into a visual thing with the computer. And like, that's like, we should be exercising those muscles as much as possible because we are all losing that as human beings. And like, that's not, that's that, like, that's actually really important because if you can only conceive of reality, like you're not going to be able to solve problems like, I don't know, climate change or the world oh, economy or no, exactly. Like if, if, if everything has to be, you know, like the, all the greatest minds that came before were very well versed in other ways of thinking than watching TV shows and movies. And like, we're not doing that. We're not exercising those parts of our brains. And I just like, well, clearly we are because, because Madeline Miller just spent 400 pages talking about it. So she's yeah. doing it. Someone's doing yeah. it. Good. Well, yeah. and here's, here's the thing. Like, I mean, I love TV and movies as much as the next person, but what you're really talking about, Ryder, is like we're turning into like entertainment consumers rather than when you're 
really in it with the a really really good book you know you're yep. doing all that work you're imagining you're it, it you're yep. directing it you're doing the acting like even all of us listening to the audiobook like we've taken away one part of our power as readers yeah. um and it was amazing but it was more it was more of like a i'm consuming this experience mm-hmm. um than it why, would be if i was why did you guys yeah. choose to listen to the audiobook just out of curiosity. Because Julia told me to. I was, yeah. So, I mean, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. I have been listening to audiobooks when I am writing grants. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've listened to more than ever in my life. And I look for books that are going to be really engaging. Because, like, you can't, like, I wouldn't have listened to, like, Pale Fire as an audiobook, for example. Right. Right. So it's kind of a new way of searching for books to listen to. And it just came up and I listened to it and I was obsessed with this woman uh, who read it. And then I started blabbing about it and you guys got on board. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, because I yeah, think I mean, I, it's one of those rare occasions. And I, I, I am curious to see what you guys would experience if you had read some of it as well. Like I, it was probably a 50, 50 split for me. Cause I was listening to it in the car or at night when I was going to bed and then I was reading it, you know, in between. And I like the, the audio version was just a more compelling experience for me. And I don't know if that's because I was tired or when you I, started reading it, did you find like, was it too, was the prose too purple? Was it Yeah, just, that's yeah. precisely, that's precisely what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, as I was reading it, I was trying to read it in her voice in my head, mm-hmm. um, which is an unusual experience as well. But um, I mean, there's, but there's also like, when you read it, there's, there's a fair amount of cliche uh, in, in her dialogue and in her narrative and stuff. And that really sort of disappears when you listen to an audiobook. at least in my experience, mm-hmm. it does, because it, Sometimes listening to an audiobook becomes a more ethereal experience than reading, um, where you're like, "Oh God, I I I don't know what I just heard for the last 17 minutes." Um, but you know, all that being said, like I, you know, what you're saying, writer, about this, you know, this imagination, all these things, I, you know, I I think w- people's imaginations are influenced by the mediums that they have access to. So, you know, people were doing cave drawings because that's all they had access to, you know? Mm-hmm. So I I think multimedia has changed the way we use our own imaginations. Um, I think that's, that's the natural evolution of things. Um, the other thing but that I wonder I think- is if I don't believe in God, which is another leap I have to make with this book. <laughs> well, this book doesn't believe in God either. Or gods, for that matter. Yeah. Well, no, that's really different. It's super, super different. Because at this point, Greek and Roman mythology, like nobody believes in this as a literal oh. deity. Or very oh, few I'm people. sure there are people. But not millions of people. So it's interesting to see how a religion has become a part of like, secular culture and it's cool to think about in a thousand years what our own religions may have taken on like that as well mm-hmm. you know what i mean god willing um well i actually don't know the answer to this question but i i mean i find it unlikely that your average greek person in that time period really took it literally right uh... it was it was this sort of like these these gods are 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 you know, our way of sort of understanding the phenomenon around us. And like, yes, like we, we, I, I, but like, did your average person believe that like their neighbor might've been visited by Athena and like had a conversation with her? 
I, I really don't know. I, or, well, people believe that they talk to Jesus all the time. Yeah. But that's, you know, it's, yeah. It's, uh, I wish I'm going to reach out to my old classics professor um, and get a more specific answer. And I'm ashamed I don't really remember enough to speak to that. I mean, I'm sure uh, there was as wide a variety as there is now. Because, you know, for, for instance, like, you know, in a lot of Native American stories, there'll be the, you know, there'll be the coda at the end where it's like, and that's why oak trees have that shaped leaf. Or, you know, like there'll be the sort of like um, uh, creation myth, you know, that's why coyote always does this. And it's like related to a natural phenomenon. And the the Native Americans didn't literally believe that that's why the tree was shaped that way or that coyote acted that way. That was just a way to sort of make the story relevant and memorable so that when you encountered something in the natural world, you would be reminded Oh, right. That, you know, I don't, I don't think your average Native American, at least as far as I understood, like actually believed that that's how the world was created. It was a process of like discussing things about the the world around them and being reminded of values that they want to, you know, a story that, you know, encodes a certain value that they want to discuss or share with each other. And that's kind of the way I would I would assume that the Greeks were doing this, but I guess the Greeks were like murdering their children and right. sacrificing them to gods and <laughs> right, right. So there was I'm, a literal component. For- I'm uh, I'm looking on the internet as we speak, and it seems like this is a question many people have asked. Yeah, and mm-hmm. uh, I do not have an easy answer within. Uh, well, it's five probably minutes. not an easy answer because there were probably fanatics, <laughs> right, who did right. believe everything literal, like right. uh, you know your average you know person nowadays. He thinks the earth is 6,000 years old because the Bible told them so. Or And then there's the people who were probably more abstract about it and enjoyed sort of thinking of it as this like way of organizing the world you know, it, to, to communicate with, them, with one yeah, another. Yeah, I mean, no one wants to believe in chaos. So they need some ordering theory no matter what. Right. So my ordering theory is science. You know, my right. mother-in-law's ordering theory is religion. That's right. fine. And I, and I understand that. I understand the need for it. Um, but uh, I, when reading mythology, and again, I've read a ton of it because I had to take that class twice. I know I've told you this story. We know uh, <laughs> you have a personal problem. But I, I find such disorder in that ordering theory <laughs> that I can't, I can't even apply it to that, that rational belief, you know? <laughs> I'm a, I mean, the way I feel about Greek myths is the way I felt about comic books when I was a kid, which is like... I don't know, like there's so much, like there's so many versions of X-Men and Spider-Man. Like, I don't know where to start. Like, I don't know what's the entry point. It's like, besides the Iliad and the Odyssey, I've never read anything else about Greek myth, you know, because I I just can't, like, I don't know where to start. Like, I don't know what's the, I want there to be like the definitive version or, but there isn't, that's kind of the point is that you're supposed to just get in there and start telling and retelling and thinking about it. And like, yeah, but for me, this is like one of the, yeah, let me give a recommendation yeah. for you and any of our listeners, because I think by far the best way in, and this is Roman, not Greek, but a lot of overlap, uh, is Ovid's Metamorphoses. So it's oh, essentially right. short stories um, a, spanning from gods to just human, fucked up human beings. Um, <laughs> and they're each, they're all transformation stories, hence the title. And they're really strange and beautiful and very abstract because... You know, when Apollo chases Daphne and she turns into a tree to avoid 
being raped? You know, like, is she literally, what is that story about? Like, it's a great way to engage with a lot of these questions. Mm -hmm. And also Ovid's Metamorphoses has inspired so many other pieces of art that it is a wonderful way to read something. And and it's like a skeleton key to a million museums Mm -hmm. or public art or Hades Town, the musical, if you like it, you know, like there's a million ways in through yeah. Ovid specifically. And if I may recommend um, Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> um, <laughs> such a dick today. <laughs> uh, the characters are named Apollo and Athena and Cassiopeia and um, Boomer. And they have a lot of Greek and Roman mythology stuff. I'm talking about the original Battlestar, and then also the the reboot, uh, you know, a decade ago. A lot of one-to-one stuff. Yeah, it's just as as important a text, I'm sure. (laughs) Look, there's there's a ship called the Pegasus. That's all I'm saying. Wow. Wow. I've I've never seen the show, but I've heard amazing things about it over the years. You've never seen Battlestar? No. Oh, there's I also, haven't either. There's a robotic dog How could called you, a Todd, I bet you, I, for some reason, I can't imagine you being okay with the fact that they, what did they, they had that replacement F word. Oh, that must have oh. driven you crazy. Yeah, it did. Fracking? Fracking? Frack. Oh my God. When I heard that, I was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I can't. I mean, I kind of get it, but it's like In just the original swear. show, there was frack, and then there was also Felderkarp, and Felderkarp meant bullshit. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> that uh, was in like the 1978 show. Felder by Carp. by, what's his name? Hammer by Crockthar's. Ha- what is it? <laughs> by Grapthar's Hammer. Grapthar's oh Hammer. man, I just watched the uh, the um, Never Surrender the Galaxy Quest documentary. It is a supremely pleasurable 90 minutes of your time, everybody. If you like Galaxy Quest, it's on um, it's on Amazon and on iTunes right oh, now. Yeah, it's really it's it. really good. 90 minutes of sheer enjoyment. By Grapthar's hammer, I will be avenged for reading Circe by Madeline Miller. <laughs> Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for listening. Broads is a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law, and I'm the host, Tori Telfer. I'm a true crime writer who started Criminal Broads after realizing that I was uncovering far too many out-of-control and terrifying stories about criminal women to fit in a single book. So, if you like stories about female cult leaders, con women, women who undergo (laughs) seven sessions of plastic surgery to avoid arrest for 14 years and 11 months... Uh, women who hung out with Bonnie and Clyde, or serious speculation about the deranged theory that Jack the Ripper was actually a woman, I think you'll like this podcast. Look for Criminal Broads on your favorite podcast listening app, or follow along at Instagram.com slash Criminal Broads, where I post a lot of photos so you can look deep into the eyes of some of the murderesses we'll be talking about. See you there! Shake it! Break it!